Today, I will be speaking with Amai Parikh, MD, MBA, MS, who is the lead author on an article published in the October Critical Care Medicine entitled, Quality Improvement and Cost Savings After Implementation of the Leapfrog Intensive Care Unit Physician Staffing Standard at a Community Teaching Hospital. Parikh specializes in nephrology and critical care medicine at the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Parikh. Thank you for having me. I thought we could perhaps begin with, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your background uh, and what drove both your interest and your institution's interest in um, looking at the aspects of this paper. Sure. So the study was done at uh, our community affiliate, the University Medical Center at Princeton. And prior to this study, the... Um, the structure of the ICU was an open model. Anybody with admitting privileges to the hospital could admit patients um, to the ICU and continue to follow them there. Um, at around uh, July 1st of 2005, they switched models to a closed ICU. And of course, going from an open ICU to a closed uh, unit or a closed unit model um, has a lot of um, repercussions in, in one form or the other. However, we wanted to also see if some of these negative aspects of things that people usually associate with this transition uh, could be mitigated by uh, improvements in quality and other, and other aspects as well. Um, and that's sort of what drove this study or drove us to do this study, was that we wanted to see, like other institutions, whether or not uh, improvements in length of stay, mortality, uh, other quality measures could be seen. And also, uh, whether or not this was really cost effective for this for this community hospital. And so, you you, talk, you spoke a little bit about some of the negative aspects of uh, implementation of intensive uh, physician staffing for the ICU. Uh, you're referring to um, some of the political aspects or the the uh, cost aspects. Probably, well, actually, both. Um, you know, some people have said you know, politically that a lot of the physicians that were initially admitting to the ICU in the open model would feel that they are either, one, losing control, losing uh, potential revenue on their part, and um, maybe even, three, not continuing to follow patients that they probably know better than anybody else. Um, and creating this, this structure where now where you bring in an extra physician or an extra team to care for the patient... Um, might cause an increase in the cost uh, of the patient's overall care, as well as uh, even to, say, the hospital administration as well. You know, there are pluses and minuses, uh, I guess, in terms of the continuity of care and and uh, who the patient is being followed by. The the other aspect, of course, is the, the, the cost of implementation, and I suppose this was uh, supported by the, the um, hospital administration. I know there are a lot of barriers uh, to that implementation and in many regards your paper, not to get to the punchline, but is a good manuscript to support that implementation. Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, initially a, a hospital would come out and say that with such a program we would need to hire intensivists on the staff, um, probably more so or have more coverage than we normally would, um, and that overall a program such as this would cost us uh, or would add to, or add negatively, I guess, to our bottom line. Um, 
Yeah, so if we take a step back, how the staffing of the ICU was uh, with, was before this the implementation phase was with non-intensivists. Is that right? That's correct. So before the before the implementation of this program, any any physician that had admitting privileges to the hospital could admit and manage their patients in the ICU, and they did not require a consultation from the pulmonary service or a critical care intensivist or critical care specialist. Um, there was a hospital policy that said that if a patient was mechanically ventilated, then it was mandatory that they have a pulmonary consultation. Um, there were house staff that were following patients uh, in the ICU, um, and this was a mixed ICU, so not only medical patients, but as well as surgical and cardiac patients all were admitted to the same ICU. And um, surgical patients tended to have pulmonary uh, consults uh, for their patients uh, that were admitted. So, and the the pulmonary consultants um, were intensivists. They, they were uh, were they present in the majority of the day, or were they um, kind of in and out and performing um, uh, simply consult con- uh, intermittent consultation? Pretty much the latter, the intermittent consultation. And the the uh, house staff or residents in the ICU were they? Um, dedicated to the intensive care unit or recovering other patients in the hospital as well? Um, at that time, there was actually, they were covering both um, the hospital as well as the ICU. and They would have patients on their, on their service that were in both locations. I see. I, I'm sure with, uh, with a bit of work, the decision was made for implementation of in, intensive uh, physician staffing as per the, the LeapFrog group. And Perhaps uh, for some of the people out there who maybe aren't as familiar with the LeapFrog group and the definition of intensive uh, staffing, could, could you help uh, elucidate that a little bit further? Sure. So the, the LeapFrog uh, physician staffing pretty much has um, uh, about, I'd say maybe about three parts um, to it. Um, one, they say that there has to be an intensivist that is uh, providing care to the patient and what they mean by an intensivist is that um, they have to be board certified in, um, in critical care. Um, and it can be even an emergency room or an emergency medicine physician that has done a fellowship in critical care um, or folks that have gone through either the medicine route, the anesthesia route, uh, or the surgical route um, and, and completed that, that certification. The, the other part of this is that the physicians or the, um, the intensivists need to be present um, in the ICU during the daytime hours and are providing their care exclusively to the ICU. So they're not, um, they're not leaving the ICU and going and doing, say, consultations elsewhere um, in the hospital for non-critical care services. Um, however, when they are not present uh, in the ICU, um, the LeapFrog kind of has this criteria where they say that they need to um, return their pages at least 95% of the time and within five minutes. And there must be sort of an arrangement where either an intensivist, a physician extender, can reach uh, the ICU patients within five minutes. And these are sort of, uh, these criteria have been studied and shown that when implemented fully, um, 
that they've realized reduced mortality uh, with this sort of regimen then. And so uh, Peter Pronovos and his group was uh, critical in some of that implementation and integrating with the LeapFrog group. And, and so clear, there's clearly been demonstration that that type of physician staffing model uh, improves um, outcomes in critical care. Correct. And I, I think it's sort of um, looking at it as, and I think his words or his description of it was a, a high-intensity uh, high staffing model versus a low-intensity um, and you know, when you meet all these criteria, it definitely sounds like it's a very highly intensive program that would need to be uh, constructed or implemented. It seems as though you know it's it's, it's somewhat vague uh, in terms of the staffing during the day, it's kind of during the daytime hours, uh, and present on the ICU. It seems as though most of the literature is focused on an eight, at least an eight-hour period or a minimum of eight hours during the day that the right. intensivist is present. Is that right? And so, how was how was this implemented? Uh, this was at a, um, I guess, a university affiliated community hospital. How, how how was the implementation performed? So, in this case, the ICU was switched from an open model to a closed model, and in this case, the hospital uh, hired intensivists uh, on staff uh, or to staff the ICU in that case. So, these intensivists were then present. Um, throughout the day uh, to receive admissions to evaluate uh, new patients. And then at night, there was also a system where that intensivist or whoever was on call was within a certain um, distance or a certain time frame away from the hospital then. And so these were not the same pulmonary critical care physicians that were already present at the institution? These were new hires? Um, these, in this case, they were not new hires. They were part of the, the group that was originally hired. So there were not uh, people that were, or I think the, the better way to phrase it would be that these were uh, part of the same group of physicians that were staffing the ICU. At this, at this hospital? Correct. I see. So they were, um, I imagine, in the financial where they were given a financial incentive to not do their uh, outpatient clinic during um, the, their ICU week or weeks. Uh, so that they were dedicated to the intensive care unit during their, those times that they were assigned. Sure, I'm sure. I believe they were actually paid a salary for performing these duties then. In, in fact, I think a part of your article alludes to the uh, the cost for those intensivists. Right. Somewhere in the 700000 range, is that right? That's right. Yeah, was that a, a, cert, a set number of FTEs that were assigned to the ICU? Or? So if I remember correctly, this was about six or seven that were then assigned uh, to the ICU. I don't know the, the actual FTEs or how that calculates out. However, this was the total salary then of that entire group, including their benefits. For the uh, portion that they provided coverage to the ICU. Correct. Seven days a week, 365 days a year. Right. Can you take us through then some of the uh, outcomes, uh, your outcome measurements, and uh, what, what you found? Looking at the two groups, we we had two years, of course, pre-implementation and post-implementation, and even between these two groups, the, the severity of illness between the two groups were about the same. Um, we found that the, the types of diagnoses that folks came to the ICU with were pretty much the, the same as well uh, from one year to the next. When we looked at the, the length of stay in the ICU from the first year to the second year, we noticed that there was 
communication in um, in the paper between ICU ward and then the total hospitalization itself. So the ICU length of stay actually decreased uh, pre-implementation to post-implementation, whereas the the ward and the total hospitalization length of stays stayed the same. As far as quality measures um, go, the, there was a decrease in the uh, central venous access device infection rate, and that actually decreased from approximately 8.5 down to 1.6 infections per 1,000 line days. And even the ventilator-associated pneumonia rate per 100 ventilator days also decreased from about 1 to 0.38. So pre-implementation, there were 18 uh, VAPs that were noted, uh, whereas in the post-implementation period, only three VAPs were noted. Well, so pretty impressive uh, changes in the from the pre-implementation to the post-implementation phase, and a significant decrease in the ICU length of stays. Right, almost a day. It sounds like almost a day. You know, as you uh, change the model of intensive care staffing, other things change as well. Is it? possible to kind of separate any of that out? Was any performance improvement activities actually begun before the implementation of intensive physician staffing, or was which much of the performance improvement uh, activities in this hospital coincide with the change in staffing? It's interesting. Um, even before implementation of the leapfrog criteria, um, there were already bundle programs that were in place to help guard against line infection and and ventilator-associated pneumonias. These quality improvement programs change as a result of the of the implementation of the leapfrog program. However, my thought, or I think what our study alludes to, is that the implementation of the program allowed for these bundles to be followed or to be adhered to much more closely than, than before. I think when you have one intensivist or a small group of uh, physicians that are caring for uh, a group of very sick patients, adhering to uh, a certain protocol for each and every one of those patients is uh, a lot more feasible than, say, individual physicians uh, caring for their one or two patients that might be in the ICU at that time. And I think that your adherence rate uh, to that um, to that program would be higher than in that case. Um, I think other things as well is that um, practice patterns are going to be much more uniform when you have a, a closed ICU or a small group of physicians caring for um, caring for these patients in the ICU. And I think that doing or having a standard practice, having um, almost a protocolized or a regimented way of caring for these patients uh, will make sure that quality initiatives and quality care is delivered uh, to the patients then. Uh, just anecdotally reflecting about my ICU, we have a surgical ICU, and we've uh, increased the number of beds over the last several years, and thus increased the number of intensivists. Uh, and it becomes more actually difficult the more intensivists you have uh, to um, have uh, more standardized uh, approaches to patient care, you know, the the more minds you have, the more that there might be some variation, uh, and certainly that would be true if you had a, a, a broadly open ICU with a large number of uh, admitting physicians compared to an intensive group, intensivist group, I should say. Uh, 
So that, that certainly certainly makes makes sense. Were there were there any measures of adherence to different um, protocols or bundles? Um, there was no surveys or no going back and seeing whether or not, say, some physicians adhered better to them uh, versus others. But um, you know, the programs themselves or the the monitoring of the programs really didn't uh, change from say one period to the next. And um, it might be something as simple as um, say the physicians that came on uh, in the post implementation period being more. Uh, cognizant of these bundles or of these programs and maybe even doing things outside of the actual program itself to ensure that things such as VAPs or line infections didn't happen. And I guess some programs uh, have uh, some sort of incentive basis for uh, improving those outcomes in, in terms of uh, reductions in uh, collapse rates or VAPs rates. Do you know of any, was there any incentive type program built into the intensivist uh, package, or was this perhaps just a purely altruism? Uh, um, there was no incentive program that was built into this, um, at least during this first year that um, that this was implemented. And as far as I know, in the years since, um, no incentive program since that time either. Sure. Can, can you help us a little bit with how... how uh, so I think sometimes people get confused about this, but if so, if if the total uh, hospital length of stay stays the same, uh, but the length of stay in the ICU uh, decreases, how, how does that decrease overall costs? If especially if uh, you know the the hospital, I guess, re- gets reimbursed for uh, their ICU um, days, uh, and unless there's a you're actually turning patients away if you move people through more quickly and have empty beds. How, how does that get factored into the, the cost savings um, part of the equation? Yeah, no, this always comes up. Um, in, so I guess the answer could be sort of answered in two parts. Um, one, we know that staying in the ICU is much more costly than staying in other parts of the hospital. And even in... Um, even in our study, we were able to calculate out that the bed cost per day in the ICU um, for our institution was $765, whereas in the ward it was $359. So right here you see that even saving a day in the ICU saves costs right there, um, meaning that um, the longer that a patient stays on the ward compared to the ICU, um, the costs are dramatically decreased. Um, it's not to say that they're getting less care or less services in the ward, but um, in fact, they might actually be getting more of certain services. But if they don't need that ICU stay or that, that ICU uh, for a certain number of days, then, um, then that's one cost savings. There's the bed that then doesn't get utilized, then say, for example, and there is um, incremental costs of having beds that go unused in the ICU. And the way that it worked at this institution was that there was a, a variable staffing as far as the, the nursing goes, so that if, say, for example, the census was not high in the ICU, um, certain uh, either nursing or other staff would not uh, come on uh, during that time. So there are certain fixed costs that come with an ICU for you know, 365 days a year. Um, and then there's certain variable costs 
that can be changed based on the census. And it's making sure that the administration um, accounts for those and responds to those changes in the ICU census um, during those times of, say, a low, a low census and can thereby decrease the variable cost during that time. I guess that, is that the, would that be the main variable cost? Is the staffing? Are there other variable costs that uh, oh, one can sure. control? The, the other variable costs that come into play then besides the staffing would be all the other services that a patient gets while in the ICU. And these are things that are automatically going to be decreased because there's not a patient there. So, for example, uh, phlebotomy costs, uh, respiratory therapy, um, there's a whole list of different cost centers that we looked at um, in our study that tended to go um, down, say, in the post-implementation year compared to the pre-implementation year. Um, and these are things that would um, automatically go down as, as the patient census uh, decreases. Um, but as the main one that would probably need to be accounted for, the main one that administration really has control over, would really be the, the staffing where the direct patient care uh, occurs. I see. So, so many of the variable costs will automatically um, essentially control themselves, whereas the staffing is the main issue that the, the administration would have to be concerned about if, uh, if the number of bed, uh, occupied beds decreased. Right. Generally, um, my understanding is that most institutions start to do this already, um, where they will actually float uh, nurses from one part or one ICU, uh, either to other ICUs in the institution or to um, other parts of the hospital, uh, or ask them uh, not to come in that day if their services are not needed. Sure, I think it does seem to be uh, fairly common across institutions these days, as everyone becomes more and more cost conscious. You know, it's a pretty consistent finding compared to other literature as well that the the intensivist staffing seems to decrease the ICU length of stay, but not the overall hospital length of stay. You would think that if you were getting people through the intensive care unit faster, they'd be getting out of the hospital faster. Um, any thoughts about an explanation for that? Or? I think that when you do have this in, um, the staffing model, you do get the patients out of the ICU faster, but it doesn't change necessarily their um, their acuity of illness, say, for example. And I think that these patients still require the, the length of stay as they normally would have or that they did in the past um, for a given disease state. Um, but now this care is being shifted into the ward as opposed to the ICU. And I think this is really a chance um, or kind of evidence that um, that these intensivists are able to get these patients over that one uh, period where their care, um, where intensive care is necessary, and then provide um, a lot of services on the ward um, as the patient is, say, recovering then. I see, and perhaps uh, intensivists are um, more conscious of the resources and are more apt to get patients out when they're ready to leave the ICU um, compared to uh, the open model? I think that's the case, and what's also interesting, I, I agree with them being able to, to move them out, uh, but even with them being present, um, even 
when you, in our study, when you start looking at where costs started increasing um, in the post-implementation uh, period, you start to see that things such as occupational therapy and physical therapy increased, um, or the utilization of these services increased in the ICU in the post-implementation period. And, I mean, these are things that traditionally um, end up getting, um, I guess, relegated to the ward uh, to take place over there as opposed to taking place in the ICU. And it, it's further evidence that I think intensivists are also looking at the long-term picture as far as trying to advance a patient's care while they are in the ICU. So just having the intensivist uh, present um, in this high in this high intensity staffing model, I think allowed the patient to get um, you know much more extraordinary care in the ICU, whereas normally that would have been you know, performed in the wards then. Sure, it's interesting. So even even though the patients were spending less time in the ICU, they were actually getting some more services that we would typically think of uh, as being performed on the ward, actually in the intensive care unit. Right. That's what you're saying? Yeah, interesting. Uh, so what what did you come away with in terms of the, uh, the overall um, return on investment or cost savings that was uh, afforded by implementation of this intensive physician staffing or LEAP, according to the LeapFrog group? So for us, um, the model that was implemented in this hospital, you know, may or may not be different from from other hospitals, sort of depending on the on the scenario and um, just the model that you know different hospitals take in, in putting this together. For us, um, our bottom line number was a return on investment of 105 percent. So meaning, um, or in other words, to to break that down, what we looked at was the the cost of the um, that the hospital saved um, from from either shifting patients um, into the ward to decreasing the length of stay. Um, there was also revenue that was realized from this program as the physicians billed for the hospital, and so this was revenue that the hospital realized. Um, the cost of the program. Um, or the main cost was the, the salaries that the hospital had to pay these physicians with as they were employed directly by the hospital. And so we uh, calculated a net hospital savings of about uh, $744,000 in, in that first year. Um, or sorry, I, I misspoke, or $830,000 um, in that first year for the net uh, hospital savings. Um, so that that number comes from taking all of the um, costs, mainly the the uh, cost of the salaries for the intensivists, uh, and um, subtracting that from the actual cost savings um, that the hospital realized. Right. So um, all the savings that the hospital realized, um, any revenue that they got from this program, um, and subtracting out the costs of the program. Correct. And. Uh, so that's pretty significant. So the the actual cost savings paid for the intensivists uh, and then essentially 105% of what the investment in those intensivists was. Is that, is that how I'm to interpret without my MBA degree? <laughs> um, or that all the costs, I, I think you said it exactly right, that all the costs were covered and then some, or, um, and, and that and then some 
is that extra uh, that extra five percent. And I think the thing to realize from this is that this is just one year of implementation of the program. Um, we have not gone back and looked at subsequent years to see uh, how much uh, the cost savings has uh, increased or at some point whether or not um, it has plateaued. Um, but uh, again, this was just within one year of implementation. I see. And if I recall, that doesn't take into consideration the um, cost savings uh, associated with avoiding, um, for instance, central line um, associated infections or ventilator associated infections? Right, exactly. And so um, it, it, it's sort of a, a, a way, uh, the methodology of looking at this. And we did this calculation in our paper to, to look at the, the total cost avoided. Um, and this was as a result of, like you said, complications such as VAPs and uh, CLABSIs or the, the central line associated bloodstream infections. Um, and that had, say, this program not been implemented, um, the hospital might have seen an additional um, cost of almost up to $1.7 uh, million um, based on the previous year's uh, incidence rates. Um, and so, granted, you can't really use this number when you're calculating um, a return on investment, but it does, it is a number that gives you pause to say, um, hey, if we hadn't done this, um, it might have actually costed us more if, if what was going on the year before continued um, without uh, without anybody stopping this. Sure, and especially with uh, value-based purchasing uh, coming more and more into effect, um, other costs associated with that as well. And I think even you know, government programs such as Medicare have started to recognize this as well, where now there are these uh, never events that um, the government would uh, refuse to pay for uh, the sequelae or the hospitalization if certain uh, things happened. And I wouldn't be surprised if um, we start seeing that in the ICU as opposed to, I think, right now where it's just being seen uh, in the wards. So as I, I, was, I was reading your manuscript, I, I was thinking, so this is a, a great manuscript. If I were beginning an intensivist program at an institution, I, you know, I'd say I could take this to my administration and make the argument uh, for intensive uh, physician staffing. Um, is there any reason to believe that this shouldn't be consistent across uh, different institutions? Well, I think that you need to look at the, the size of the institution and um, granted this was a what we would call a, a medium-sized hospital um, and a maybe a medium-sized ICU as well. Um, I think in uh, Dr. Pronovo's paper, he developed a model to look at small hospitals, medium-sized, and um, large ICUs as well. And there was a great range um, in, in his study, um, one showing a huge loss and also the possibility of realizing uh, a significant cost savings as well. And I don't know what the factors are that would cause this loss, but I don't know that you can take this to every hospital in the United States and say, um, hey, this is the paper that proves this. I think you could take this paper and say in a similar setting, in a 
negative or uh, has the potential for savings. Um, but I don't think that we can use this as uh, sort of the end-all, be-all uh, as far as studies go. Um, this is definitely a single-center study. Um, it is not a, um, you know, a blinded or a randomized type study or not even one with the, where in this case the control group was the year prior. Um, and so there are definitely things about this study that um, you couldn't uh, take this and apply it to every institution. Um, but I do think that this is really the, the beginning or should give the impetus to, to start studies such as this um, in, say, a multi-centered arrangement or a multi-centered design to, to truly prove, say, what factors uh, in different types of hospitals um, lend themselves to creating a savings or to uh, doing quite the opposite of you know, being an extra cost, uh, say, to the hospital. Sure. I guess different from, from the Pronovost article, uh, they really centered on modeling the, the, the um, modeling the financial models, but creating financial models um, rather than looking at actual um, financial impacts. They, they, had, they seem to go with kind of worst-case scenarios and best-case scenarios with a lot of different factors changing in there, um, not just the size of the institution. Uh, so you, that's, it seems to me that's what your um, paper adds to the literature is, is an actual uh, kind of a real-life example, would you say? Yeah, I would say that it, it goes to support these, uh, like the theoretical model that's, uh, that's been put out in the literature already, and I think it, uh, it definitely confirms and um, supports this, this original paper that was done. Um, and like you, were, like you were saying, there are ranges, though, within these variables um, that, was, that was elucidated in the model. Um, I think that for, for our paper, it showed that in this setting, in this, in this hospital, uh, we were able to show um, uh, cost savings or a positive outcome then. That's great. Any uh, further follow-up uh, studies planned at this time? Um, I think that we would like to go back and see... Um, sort of do a, um, you know, that was then, you know, what's going on now sure. uh, type of study um, or look to see uh, now how the quality, um, how the quality projects or quality improvements have continued to, um, to, to fare uh, since the implementation of this program. Um, and I think that's really, um, at least in our minds, it, uh, in the whole study group, one of the one of the main messages that we wanted to get across was that, you know, it's great that there was a cost savings that uh, that we were able to, to realize. But first and foremost, I think that um, being able to improve the quality of care and to decrease the complications that these patients uh, had in the ICU is probably the most uh, paramount aspect of this study, showing that um, this high-intensity uh, staffing model was able to... Um, to yield that, and that it has a financial savings as well, um, only gives more credence uh, to implementing such a such a program. Sure, that's great, and thank you. That's uh, that's a very pleasant reminder that absolutely it's all about the patient and ensuring that uh, that we provide quality patient care, which clearly uh, improved uh, in this ICU. Are there any other points uh, that we did not bring up that you wanted to address um, to the audience? I think those were the the main things. Yeah, I think that Great. Was, 
Thank you so much uh, for joining me here uh, on the iClinical Care Podcast. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking to you and uh, learning and reading about your manuscript. Thank you, and thanks again for having me. This concludes another edition of the iClinical Care Podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more episodes and or subscribe at iTunes by searching for SCCM. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is Associate Professor of Surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is Director of the Surgical ICU and Executive Medical Co-Director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.